be listening to your music respectfully. Ready? Are we on? Good. So, good evening. Welcome back to our evening meditation at Bear Island. One side of the island is uh, quite misty and cloudy. The other, there are signs of blue sky. So, rather like meditation itself. We welcome uh, some new arrivals, uh, Giovanni and Luke and Rebecca. Uh, who have come in this morning. And um, Giovanni will be leading the yoga tomorrow morning and the next couple of mornings. And also, I'll ask him to do a, f a few minutes uh, introduction to the meditation this evening so we can enter into it fresh. I think All right. Okay. So not on Friday. Okay. Wednesday and Thursday. Saturday. Okay. Good. So, um, for your benefit, we'll, uh, I, well, I won't summarize what we've been talking about, but we've been basically looking at those, some key moments in the life of Jesus leading up to the story that culminates uh, with Holy Week and the Passion and the three days of Easter. Uh, key moments in which we see the contemplative dimension or the contemplative practice, if you like, in the life of, of Jesus as it takes expression in uh, times of silence, times of solitude, times of withdrawal. We've come here on retreat to a lonely place or to a, a quiet place uh, and Jesus did the same thing on a regular basis and at key moments uh, in his life. But, and uh, tonight we'll look at the, the last time he did that, which was the night of his, uh, night before his death. And after the uh, Passover meal, which he celebrated with his disciples, it would have been a, a joyful and solemn, but also a joyful occasion <coughs> in the Jewish life. Um, he then uh, went across the Kedron Valley, which was a small little dip, really. Always, I always thought the Kedron Valley was a, was a sort of a, like Death Valley or something, some huge, great chasm, but it's just a, a little dip. Uh, so he crossed the Kedron Valley uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this seems to be a place where he went on other occasions close to Jerusalem. And uh, when I was in Jerusalem some years ago, of course, we went to visit the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, it is a, a very peaceful, secluded place, not far from the city, which is anything but uh, peaceful and secluded. Um, and uh, a place of, of, of great, uh, great presence and great energy. We meditated there and it was a very, very deep uh, moment. And 
as, as well as that, it's a place which sort of brings the story and the details which we have become mythical, of course, in our imagination. Uh, the stories of these last few hours of Jesus' life, which have been recorded and painted and had music made about them and uh, imagined and books written about it, you know, uh, more than we can ever uh, consume. Uh, but it brings these, uh, these key moments down to earth because they are uh, small places, actually, they're on very human scale. And uh, suddenly this great myth, you know, becomes very real and very human. And uh, one of the things that strike, struck me in the Garden of Gethsemane was the, an olive tree, a very gnarled old olive tree, which we were told was 2,500 years old which would have been that Jesus would have seen it. Maybe that was where he withdrew uh, a few feet away from his disciples to pray, we don't know. But, um, so suddenly it becomes, uh, it becomes more real when you say, well, that tree, if it's 2,500 years old, that's where it was 2,000 years ago, and it was already 500 years old. Um, Although I must say, our guide, when you asked him, is that really true, would always say, if you want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so this is, uh, this is one expression, this is one description of um, Gethsemane here. Matthew is the better one, sorry. Jesus, so after, the, uh, pass, after singing the Passover hymn, this would be on, in our living out of the story, that's uh, tomorrow night, Thursday night, when we celebrate the Mass of the Lord's Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And it was then that he tells his disciples to be prepared for the fact that they are going to run away and abandon him. And they deny it, and Peter, of course, especially. But uh, Jesus then came with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Peter, James, and John. Anguish and dismay came over him, and he said to them, My heart is ready to break with grief. Stop here and stay awake with me. He went on a little further, fell on his face in prayer, and said, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass me by. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
He came to the disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, What? Could none of you stay awake with me for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may be spared the test. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to pass me by without drinking it, your will be done. He came again and found them asleep, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again, and he prayed the third time, using the same words as before. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Still sleeping? Still taking your ease? The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed to sinful men. Up, let us go forward. The traitor is upon us. So, very, uh, very moving and very dramatic uh, description of what of the solitude, the the loneliness of Jesus at this moment. He had withdrawn, as he did on many other occasions, to a quiet place uh, with his disciples with his friends. Sometimes he went to these places alone, sometimes with a few friends. So on this occasion he went with a few, expecting and hoping them to console him, comfort him, be companions to him. He just needed, like any other human being, to be able to go through uh, what he had to go through alone, but to go through it with others near him. And uh, they couldn't stay awake. Maybe they drunk too much at the Passover meal, or maybe they had also uh, just felt the heaviness uh, of, the, of the moment and his own heaviness of heart. He told them that his heart was breaking with with anxiety, with fear. And um, in the, another account of the same uh, incident, he, the stress is laid upon his suffering, that he suffers deeply in this time of solitude and prayer. Uh, the sweat fell from him like drops of blood, so he was in deep physical and psychological anguish. And uh, it reminds us that one of the, the, the major elements of, of, his, of the passion is his psychological and mental suffering as well as the physical suffering. I think the film, what was it called? The Passion of the Christ, what was his name? Who's Mel Gibson, who relishes very violent films, um, went to town on the physical, I didn't see it, cause, but went to town on the physical uh, suffering, the physical details, and I think apparently 20 minutes. Anybody see it? Yeah. Did you like it? No. You did? I, I did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It was hard to watch, but I, mm. I, it was very moving. Yeah. Well, I didn't see it, but I didn't like him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> as you say. <laughs> I wouldn't. So, Yes. That were precious, you know. They were yeah. Well done. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I, yeah. yeah. A, somebody once said, I, I, I don't, I don't read, I don't read books that I do reviews about because I find it prejudices my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, but the emphasis there apparently is very much on the physical, the physical suffering and 20 minutes uh, for the scourging scene and so on. But. Um, and there's no, no doubt the physical suffering was was uh, terrible. But what the actual texts uh, of the Gospels present to us is not the gory details of the of the physical suffering. It doesn't dwell on that at all. It dwells upon the uh, more upon the interior suffering. Um, and, but also upon his way of going through it. Uh, suffering, frightened, fully human, ordinary, normal, as one would expect, but at the same time with, a, uh, with an awareness, with a, a, a wakefulness. Interesting here, he is criticizing them for not being awake. Uh, and he goes through it all fully awake. Anyway, so we see here the um, uh, another or the, the final uh, example of Jesus's uh, movement from active, busy life, ordinary life, into places and times of solitude and silence. So places and times. The places are important. He goes to places of not in the city. Uh, he, places of, of natural simplicity or natural beauty, we would say. Places of um, not urbanized uh, centers. Um, and there, in, in this, and maybe on other occasions, uh, he went through turmoil and came through the turmoil, but had to go to a place like that and give the time necessary for it to uh, allow the turbulence, the turmoil, or in this case, the primal fear. He's now being shaken by the primal fear of all of us, that, uh, however peaceful and beautiful the death we may have, or hope to have, uh, that we will have to go through some primal um, anguish and as we face our, our end. And we know we're facing our end. It seems to be one of the things that we think separates us from the animal kingdom, that we are conscious of our, of our being, beings towards death, of being mortal. So this is, this is a, prime, a primal fear that um, we have to face and we can go through. Um, so the, the natural environment that Jesus chooses to withdraw to in all of these uh, examples that we've looked at 
and even here the garden, says something, I think, about the experience of, of silence and solitude itself, the contemplative experience, something natural. One of the difficult things for, for modern people to understand about meditation is that it's natural. It, it, it's not something, in most cases, we were introduced to or trained in or allowed to experience early in life. So by the time most of us in adult life come to it, it's something that we feel we have to struggle with to uh, integrate into our lives. And there's an effort and a, and a record of failure in that. We give up, we start again. But eventually we, we come through that urbanized conditioning and self-conscious conditioning and we discover actually meditation, the contemplative dimension of life is as natural as the bushes growing along the, head, along the, the roads here or as natural as the weather coming and going across the Atlantic. It's natural. And when we realize that, it, it opens us up to the world around us and to a new vision of the world we're actually living in. And um, if, if we think of what we're doing collectively, globally, to our physical global environment today, and we relate that to the rapid increase of urbanization and the, uh, the changes that have taken place in, in consciousness because of that urbanization, because we're city dwellers now, we may begin to see how a contemplative re resurgence or a contemplative recovery is probably essential for us to correct the course that we are on. There's a Chinese saying that if you keep going in the same direction, you will arrive at the place you're going to. In other words, if you don't want to go to the place and you can see you're moving towards the edge of a cliff, then you have to change direction. And for us, I think we could say that the learning, encountering this contemplative um, consciousness, engaging with it through a contemplative practice, is a change, a radical change of direction. It's one of the reasons we, we struggle in the first stages. It could be the first few weeks, or it could be the first 10 years of learning to meditate. We simply struggle with making it part of our daily life. But once, that, once we have discovered how natural it is, it, it shows us the world that we are living in, in a new way. And once we see it in a new way, we also realize we relate to it in a new way. To see something is to relate to it. 
And the way you see something, or the way you don't see it, the way you treat it as if it were invisible, like a person in a, in a room who you're not interested in or you is too insignificant for you to be uh, even to notice, uh, the way you don't see something, the way you make someone or something invisible to you, um, you know, decides your relationship with them. If you ignore someone, or you re they really are invisible to you, then your relationship with them is rather damaged. And they, will, uh, they may well tell you that at some point. So, uh, the way we see things is the way we relate to them. Like I was saying the other day, um, a word that we should um, recognize as a very uh, significant word in many of the old religious spiritual texts is behold. To behold something. Uh, so to behold something is to see it in its entirety to see it for what it is, and to see it in its context. And it's not a utilitarian, analytical way of looking at something. What, what am I going to get out of this? Uh, is this of any interest to me? We simply see it without a judgment, really, or without a self-centered judgment. And that quality of contemplative perception being able to behold and see in the full context, that changes us and changes our relationship. So if we see the world in this way, the physical world that we're living in, then uh, our relationship to our environment begins to change as well. So despite all of the scientific evidence, and all of the um, conferences and the global meetings that have taken place and all the scientific um, uh, warnings, uh, we don't seem to be taking very effective collective action about changing the direction in which we're moving. <coughs> and the uh, President Trump you know, is rolling back the um, environmental uh, uh, legislation that um, the previous administration had brought in. Um, so progress is, is always a very fragile, uh, fragile thing. We can never be complacent about any progress we make. So. Perhaps it, it is time for us to think about the practical impact of the number of people meditating, or the number of people who are learning a contemplative practice. And that, I think, begins with children. Uh, the practical impact of that contemplative consciousness on 
the way we relate and treat the world that we're living in. We live in an Anthropocene era now. It's an, an era in which uh, the greatest uh, single impact made upon the planet is created by human beings. And there's a, a general acceptance, I think, in the world of geology and in environmental studies that that this is now a reasonable thing to say, that we, the human species, only one among many, but we, the human species, are creating the biggest impact on our global environment. And the responsibility that that brings with it is, of course, quite frightening, that we are capable of bringing about a dramatic um, imbalance and even fatal imbalance, at least fatal to ourselves and to many other species. So where does that come from? If Jesus, just to go back, to link it back to that, if Jesus chooses to go to natural places, to not just beautiful, but if a place is really natural, uh, it is likely to be beautiful. So let's, but let's forget the beauty for a moment, although one shouldn't really forget it because it's what makes uh, part of its impact upon us. But just to go to a place that is unspoiled, in which the human impact is minimal or non-existent. We always feel this is re renewing us, refreshing us. If you walk to the other side of the, of the island, I don't know how many of you have, have visitors here have walked up the mountain and over to the other side, you'll see what I mean. Because this is the Anthropocene side of the island, with all the houses and the hotel and the village and shop and, uh, and the, um, the few uh, street lights that there are on the island. But walk over, just walk up and over to the other side and you are in the wilderness. There are some sheep there, quite a lot of wild sheep, well they're not wild sheep, uh, sort of punk sheep with red and blue barks on them uh, and cattle. But generally the, the contrast is, is very powerful. And uh, it's a bit like the left and the right hemispheres of the brain to go from this side, the landward side, uh, to the seaward side of the island. The two hemispheres of the brain, you remember, are two ways of perceiving reality, two ways of paying attention. The <coughs> Uh, they both work together, they collaborate, they're involved, both of them are involved in everything we do and think and feel, but there is a world of difference between them. And the left hemisphere is the, the 
works by creating models of reality. So it deals by redu through reductionism or through reduction. It creates a model and then it sees and it takes things apart and then can put them together again. And it can do wonderful things, you know, <coughs> using a microscope. But uh, but this model of reality that, that is created is not reality. And according to Ian McGilchrist, who's brought together all of this uh, research and, and, and neurological research into the two hemispheres of the brain, the left hemisphere th of the brain is the messenger. But it thinks it's the master. It thinks it knows the world better than the right hemisphere of the brain, or anybody else. It's very difficult if you are a very left brain kind of person. It's very difficult for you, for example, to say, sorry, I've made a mistake. I need to do this again. Because we invest ourselves so intensely in the models of reality and the systems that we create. And it looks down in his way of describing it, it looks down uh, in a condescending way to the right hemisphere of the brain, which is a bit flaky and not so scientific, so factual, so down to earth. But in fact, what, we, what neuroscience has shown us is that it is actually the right hemisphere of the brain, you might say the contemplative consciousness, it's the right hemisphere of the brain that actually is in touch with reality as it is. It is in the flow of things. It doesn't work through models, pictures of reality. It is in the moment with what is happening. It specializes in first-hand experience. It then sends that first-hand experience through billions of these little transmitters to the left hemisphere of the brain. And the left hemisphere is supposed to file it and package it and create models which are useful so that we don't get lost every time we go from the Herisher Center back to the place we're staying. We have these little models, little maps in our, our brains after a while. You got lost, did you, today? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, and then it's supposed to send that back to the right hemisphere of the brain for its, for its use. But what happens culturally and psychologically if that exchange, that flow between the contemplative and the active ways of it paying attention, the ways of being, the Martha and the Mary, if they become disrupted. Well, we begin to treat the world as if it were a machine. We work on a mechanical model of life and even of the human. We reduce the human to some kind of machine. And we all have felt this when we're treated by bureaucracy or by customer service lines or uh, banks or air airlines. We, we, we all feel how modern life, with its amazing achievements, and even medicine can be thrown into this, nevertheless 
treats us increasingly in a depersonalized, mechanical, computer kind of way. And this is how we begin to see ourselves then on the model of a computer. We think of the mind so often as if it were some kind of computer, advanced computer. So, um, going to natural places for your times of silence and solitude is very understandable. Because in those times of silence and solitude, you are allowing your own being, your own consciousness, to rebalance for the flow between left and right hemisphere, uh, between contemplative and active, to be reset, to be enhanced. And we know Jesus wasn't a hermit. And to meditate doesn't mean you are, you know, a hermit living in the Himalayas. You build these times of withdrawal, of silence, of solitude, of natural being. You, you, you integrate them into, into daily life and you balance them with all of the activities that we do. And the fact, and we, we know how challenging and difficult that is for us in this culture because we all feel there isn't time for it. It's very difficult to find the time to do it. There's always something else we've got to do. And it's that is, is actually the, you know, the, the warning sign. That's the signal that we, we honestly feel we don't have time for this, although most of the time we feel it's what we would like to do and want to do. So, um, one of the consequences of this imbalance in our life, and, uh, and Jesus is clearly teaching by his example the need for balance, that the, one of the consequences of the imbalance is that we become increasingly self-enclosed, self-encapsulated, self-conscious, and less and less able to behold, less able to see what is simply there, what is naturally present. Because we're, what we are seeing are, is, is being filtered through the models and usually the rather confused models of reality that we have constructed. Contemplation is no more, no less than seeing what is there with a pure heart. And in that, that is the meaning of the Beatitude. Happy, relieved, we might say, are those who are pure of heart for they see God, they see what is. While we're in that imbalance, we are focusing upon models of reality and upon our own self-conscious experience. This is one of the blocks that we all have to face, I think as modern people come into meditation, is that we think we're going to get an experience 
or we want a certain type of experience. And people will often say, I'm very confused. Um, what is supposed to be happening? Should I be feeling this? Is this all right? You know, so we're, we, all, we all have done it at the beginning. We are not sure what should be happening, but we are pretty certain that something should be happening. So when John Mayne says, when you meditate, nothing happens, that's, that's quite, just quite confusing. And then when he goes on to say, and if it does happen, ignore it. That probably makes it even more confusing at first. But after you have begun to uh, redress the balance and you've taken, you're beginning to take those times of withdrawal, those times of silence and solitude, then you begin to see what it means that you're not looking for something to happen. You're not waiting or expecting or demanding an experience that is going to be your experience, an experience that you can watch, record, measure, talk about, and so on. And as this balance becomes, becomes more, he more healthily uh, established with the practice, you begin to realize that it's not that, that, that contemplation, the first-hand experience of reality, is not about experience at all in any way that we normally use the word experience. Did you have a good holiday? Oh, I had a great experience. I was really great. You know, did you, was it a great film? I really was. So we, we have these memories of great experiences, which then, of course, we tend to dress up in our memories or until we forget them. But um, you know, we see a great film and talk about it for a week and then completely forget about it. While it lasted, it was a great experience. So we, we imagine that contemplation is about having that kind of experience. But it isn't. In fact, it's about getting out of that sort of mindset altogether. The, uh, the great teachers of our tradition urge us, and Jesus himself says, to be watchful, to be awake, Jesus said, to, um, and the later teachers will say, oh, you know, be watchful of your heart, of that, set a guard over your heart so that you will catch negative or um, destructive thoughts, feelings, passions, patterns of behavior, patterns of, of feeling. Uh, we repeat these patterns, of course, after a certain number of years, after we've been formed psychologically, we, we operate on repetitive patterns, stay with us for life, usually. Um, so we, uh, the advice is, be aware, catch them. So, you know, have somebody at the immigration control checking the passports and the visas of these visitors 
or these recurrent visitors, and, uh, and catch them if they're the kind of people you don't want wandering around your psyche, then uh, catch them and, and deal with them and turn them into a friend. Rather than send them back, you turn them into a friend. But uh, So watching your heart, being self-aware, is a little paradoxically, it may seem at first, the way to overcome our self-consciousness. Because our self-consciousness is really locked into these recurrent patterns, which include the, the pattern of desiring an experience that we can say is mine, that we can say that meditation was worthwhile because I got that kind of experience from it, or this or that. So that's where our self-consciousness is, is embedded. It's in those repetitive cycles, patterns of our own minds. Catch them and sort of expose them, be conscious of them, arrest them, and then dissolve them when you become more free because you're not subject to these involuntary patterns and cycles, do that and you will become less self-conscious and more able to behold, more able to see what is there. It's difficult for us, until we've begun that, to understand or believe the silence and the solitude that we see Jesus teaching us through his regular withdrawal to places and times uh, alone or with his friends. Very difficult for us in the West, Western culture and Western Christianity because they've been trapped in the self-conscious mind. One of the in the left hemisphere of the brain, if you like. So we have we've often reduced religion to dogmatic belief. And belief is a relatively small part of what religion is really about. As we'll see in the coming days, it's not so much what you believe, it's how you enter into the great symbols the great stories. And tomorrow night in the washing of the feet and the Eucharist and Friday in the, in, the, in the chant and the veneration of the cross and in all those great symbols of the Easter Vigil and the telling of the stories. This is, where, this is, this is what religion essentially is, much more than orthodoxy of belief. And we've reduced religion to this kind of checklist and, you know, uh, KGB type of um, uh, theological correctness. It's not that the beliefs and the doctrines are not important, the dogma is not important, but they are not the essence of a religious 
uh, awareness of the world. So we've often reduced religion through the self-conscious mind to being merely dogma or doctrine or compliance with rules. In other words, we've reduced the gospel. Pope Francis warns us one of the great dangers of uh, facing uh, the church is to reduce the gospel to an ideology. Maybe it's a moral ideology or political ideology. We reduce it to things that can be enumerated, bulleted, bullet points. And, um, you know, a very creating a model of reality out of it rather than seeing it fresh in the moment for what it is. This is why many people, myself included, find that the, 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 the beliefs, the doctrines, and the rituals that you learned uh, as a child or early in life um, and found increasingly stale and unable to help you deal with the questions you were really struggling with, that those come alive again for you once you've developed this new pattern of withdrawing on a regular basis to a quiet place for silence and solitude alone or with a few friends. Once that contemplative pattern begins to form, it enables you to revisit and rediscover with a fresh, fresh and uh, immediate um, awareness the meaning of these doctrines or the meaning of these symbols and the rituals. So, our, our work of silence and solitude, which is the work of the mantra in, in the way we meditate, is um, quiet but revolutionary. It changes things at their root. It, it opens us to something, to a reality that is not what we expect it to be. It's a new kind of experience. It even makes us think of the meaning of experience itself. What is experience? When the Buddha was asked at the end of his life, what did you get out of meditation all these years? He said, nothing. But he said, but I lost a lot. <laughs> I got rid of a lot. If we could approach meditation to begin with, anyway, in this way, to see it's about letting, it's clearing out. It's letting go of things rather than trying to acquire something. We'd find it much easier. Socrates said that um, a secret of happiness is not, to, is not to be found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to in for less, to enjoy uh, 
less things. So we become more, you know, the more simple we become, the more joyful we become, the happier we become. And again, there's one part of our mind that cannot uh, make sense of that, especially our consumer, ideologically consumer-trained minds. It's all about getting something and acquiring it and stocking it up. Uh, so it takes time for that uh, mindset to, to be re reprogrammed or to be let go of and uh, to discover what we were talking about this morning, the, the grand poverty, the, the great, deep and rich poverty of the silence and the solitude. <laughs>